ask him for God. Have to say to us, and may our lives. for you shall be satisfied. So your hunger now reminds you of a satisfaction that he promises later. And he doesn't really mean necessarily that if you're hungry now, don't worry, at noon, you'll probably have lunch. I mean, that's probably true. (laughs) But the now and later of the Beatitudes is now, your experience in the church age is difficult, it's tough, there's suffering. But later... Their satisfaction. And that's what the book of Revelation is promising, the fulfillment of the hunger. You hunger now, but there will be satisfaction later. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Want what? Just want. And the most basic of your wants, one of the most basic needs that you have is hunger. That's why later in the psalm, he promises to do what? To set a table before you, even in the presence of your enemies. So again, he's, he's not just talking about food. He's using food as an analogy for what it's like when you're trying to pursue the Lord and it's very difficult uh, and you even have enemies that are against you in pursuing the Lord. It would be easier for you if you just joined the enemy's ranks, but not joining the enemy's ranks leaves you out and you're not at their table. You don't get their food. But the Lord promises that if you lean into the hunger now, as difficult as it is, there will come a time when the enemies are put down and you will be satisfied. Even at communion just now, we read Jesus' promise that he will drink the cup new with us again in the kingdom. It's going to be difficult now, but we're looking ahead to a time where I will rejoin you and we will have a meal at a table and we'll have a feast and no one is going to ever bother you again. All of your needs All of your wants are like hunger. We can't shake it. We need something to fill us. And that something is Jesus Christ himself. That's why fasting makes sense, by the way. Uh, Some people say, "I'm, I'm fasting from video games. It's nice to take a break from video games. That's not fasting. Fasting is giving up a basic need like hunger and saying, as much as I am starving right now, Lord, I need you more. We long for a day when all longings will be a distant memory and we will be perfectly, finally satisfied in Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' promise to the believer and that's why here in Revelation, this glorious finale in chapter 19 takes the form of a wedding feast. We're going to have a big dinner meal with Jesus and that's the image. So we're going to be in chapter 19 Let's look at just the first 10 verses where we see we will feast with Jesus. And of course, uh, some of us, that's all we need. Like, wow, a really big meal? I'm in. 
Um, that's me. But again, it's, it's at a deeper level. What does our hunger represent? All longings, all perfect satisfaction represented in this final a climactic scene, which is this wedding feast. Let's look at the first 10 verses. John writes, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servant." Praise our God all Hallelujah for the Lord our God. herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of god For the testimony of Jesus is the prophecy. Say hallelujah a lot, right? We see it in, in sing, songs that we sing. We don't always explain it. Some of us remember what it means, but it's uh, Hebrew words put together and into one and transliterated into one English word that means praise the Lord. Hallelujah just means praise the Lord or praise to the Lord. And it's repeated in this passage because this is about praising him for all he's done. He gets all the credit. He gets the glory. He's the one who has the power. He's the one who overcomes. And this praise, this hallelujah, this repetition of hallelujah is appropriate. Why? Because his judgment came through for us. I mean, this is a future scene and it's reflected. happened so hallelujah salvation and glory belong and power belong to our god verse one why why did why does he deserve praise why did why do we say salvation belongs to him glory belongs to him power belongs to him because his judgments are true and that great prostitute that we spent the past two chapters unpacking the corruption of the earth the waywardness of the world has been judged and all the saints that have been killed in the wake of man's quest for power and autonomy from God have been avenged. So the focus here is this uh, celebration uh, of a wedding feast that you see in verses 6 through 9. 
This is the, the marriage supper of the Lamb that is finally going to be that celebration that the enemies have put down and we, are, we finally have this deep satisfaction. And the focus is Christ, not his servants, not what surrounds him because John is tempted to worship the messenger. Imagine being invited to a wedding that's so glorious and you open that envelope and you hear angels singing and light is coming out of the envelope. Just imagine this crazy scene. It's such a glorious invitation that you're tempted to drop right there and worship the, the dude that just brought you the envelope. And the angel's like, you haven't even seen anything yet, man. Don't worship me. I'm just the messenger of the one you should be worshiping. But this thing's going to be awesome. And you're invited. Now, uh, this whole wedding scene, this feast, this, we talk about it a lot. The church is Christ's bride and we're waiting for our groom. Uh, where does that symbolism really come from? Well, I've recommended this book many times. William Hendrickson and his book, More Than Conquerors, he reminds us that it's important to understand the Jewish wedding background to uh, this passage here. So we'll put this up on the screen and Hendrickson walks you through this and I put it on the screen so that if you need it later, I can send it to you. Don't worry about writing everything down for those of you who are taking notes. But he talks about this sort of four stages, these four stages of the Jewish wedding. And the first one is the betrothal. All right, this is where the terms are set. We call it an engagement, but engagements break up all the time. Maybe not all the time, but yeah, you know it's not real until the wedding. But, but here it's different. Uh, you would have had a gathering, there would have been witnesses there, terms are read out, almost like a contract, like here are the terms of the marriage. And there are witnesses there, and actually God at that betrothal ceremony. Uh, it's actually legally binding. So this is going to happen. Period. The groom is paying this uh, dowry, father of the bride, but for, it's for the bride. Uh, and and in this period, the bride is waiting, waiting for the payment to be all done, and waiting for the groom to get everything together that he needs to get together. Then finally, there's a procession where the bride knows that the groom is coming, she's getting adorned, and she's got help with all of that, and the groom gets dressed up in his best attire, and he comes lives, they proceed out. to see what scripture is doing here similarly we are christ's bride jesus has made a sure payment to secure us but we're not there yet we've been betrothed the terms have been set 
Jesus has made, has made the necessary payment to purchase us as his bride, but we're not home yet. We're still waiting, getting adorned, getting dressed up, being made holy, little by little, in process, we're being sanctified, and there will come a time where he comes with the company of the elect who've gone before us, with angels singing, blasting trumpets, the whole nine yards. It's a celebration where our groom will finally come for us to bring us home, and then it's, it culminates in this marriage feast that doesn't last seven days, but forever, forever celebrating our union with Christ. It's a beautiful promise. That's why there's all these hallelujahs, and it's why it's after these two dark passages of Revelation 17, ugh, and Revelation 18, ugh, and then 19, you're like, oh, thank you. The longing is over, the battles are done, the enemies are put down, and we get to feast in peace. It's an amazing promise. Mark up Revelation 19, especially this first half, and return to it frequently, brothers and sisters, to encourage yourself that this is not the end. The thing that's facing you right now is not the end. This isn't it. This is the longing part. This is the hunger part. This is the feeling lost in the wilderness part. But we look ahead to this return, the return of our groom. His promise is to return and take us home. But don't miss the undertone of this celebration It's not just rescue from our personal sins. It's also rescue from our persecutors. The aim of this chapter, the aim of Revelation 19, is to encourage you in this particular way. That we can rest assured that Jesus will vindicate his suffering saints. Not just suffering in general, cancers and diseases and job losses. Everyone experiences that. But the extra layer of suffering that Christians experience is persecution from a world that hates Christ. And what this passage is promising is that Jesus is going to justly deliver God's vengeance against his enemies. Right now, you might be going, huh, I'm not as excited for that part. I don't sit there going, God, would you put down wickedness? And I wonder if... Some of that might be a false sense of holiness. That it's too ugly to want people to be punished. It's too ugly to want God to come and put people down. That just doesn't seem loving. But if you've seen suffering, if you've seen evil, it would be heartless to not want that. We're a little bit coddled here in America but we have our own pressures to deal with as well. And this is promising that Jesus Christ doesn't lack vengeance. He will deliver God's vengeance against his enemies. Let's look at just verse 11 to establish that this is not wrong. This is not um, off-putting. This is not one of God's hidden attributes that he saves for the end of the, the Bible to reveal, oh, by the way, I have a vengeance problem. This is to be celebrated. He deserves hallelujah because of vengeance. And it's because it says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. You You serve a God who, in Jesus Christ is yes, a shepherd. 
but he's, he's only a shepherd toward his people. Who is he toward the ones who want to steal the flock, deceive the flock, rob the flock, kill and destroy the flock? Toward them, he's a warrior. And this is why David is such a fitting image. Why does the Old Testament spend so much time on David? David is a shepherd. He's also one that kills Goliath. How do you have the two in one? Because he's a warrior king. Yes, he writes poetry. He plays music. He plays instruments. But don't mistake that for a softy. That's the image you have in David, channeled in this King Jesus who comes riding this white horse. The white horse represents purity, probably. It also represents uh, like Julius Caesar returning from his triumphant victory, he would return on a white horse as he comes back into Rome. And so it's channeling that triumphant image. He's triumphant, but he's not triumphant because he is mostly faithful, but in this area he just, he just likes to go to war. Sorry, guys. No, it's because he's faithful that he makes war. It's because he's true that he makes war. And when he judges and makes war, he does it in righteousness, it is right for him to put down the enemies. So Jesus is going to have this feast with his people, but not everyone is invited to that feast, brothers and sisters. Those who have made it difficult on the saints, have persecuted the saints, have locked up Christians, separated them from their families, have made it even just taboo, or those who tempt Christians to sin. Remember when Jesus says, those who tempt my little ones, it would be better to hang a rock around your neck, the millstone that we talked about last week, and get thrown into the ocean. By little ones, he means his flock, his children, his people. So Jesus is protective of his flock. You feel protective of your kids, don't you? If somebody threatens a kid, you'd be mad. If someone threatens your kid, it's going to go up a level. And that's not sinfulness. That's just hardwired into being a dad, into being a mom. And you're not a better a dad than Jesus. So Jesus makes war out of righteousness on his enemies who've taken it upon themselves to oppress the church. Now when he comes, he's not just coming to flex his power. He's coming to deliver the saints who've been longing for this final put-down of Babylon, for this final put-down of the beast, for this... Final put down of ultimately the dragon and all his followers. This is the hero finally putting down the bad guy. And if you've ever watched the, some kind of show or something and it's on season 14 and the villain is still around, you're like, oh my goodness, will you kill this guy? You know, that's the, that's the cry of the saints throughout history. It's like whack a mole. Every time you put down one villain, another villain pops up. There will always be villains until. All of it, represented by Babylon, the prostitute, and even the dragon himself is finally put down. That's when it will end. It would be foolish of us to not long for that. It would be wicked of us to not. It would be unrighteous of us to not long for it. Because he does it out of being faithful and true and righteous. Now Jesus' delivery of God's vengeance is clear. And it's to vindicate the saints. Let's read 12 to 16, and there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to do my best to help you see how to work through all these symbols. His eyes, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, crowns, 
And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, uh, the, uh, the name by which he is called, is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw that, well, we'll stop, we'll, we'll stop there at 16. Okay, so there's a lot of imagery there. You got crowns, diadems, a sword coming out of his mouth, a name you don't know, a name that is written. He's got his bloody robe as he rides this white horse. Now, his, some of the symbols are not that hard. His fiery eyes. And his many diadems, his many crowns speak to his judgment and his rule. You remember back in chapter 2 where Jesus is talking to his churches and he's got fiery eyes there and he says, hey, I know your works. He searches mind and heart and he gives them according to those works in Revelation 2. So the fiery eyes are his piercing gaze that's able to see what is true, what is right, and what is wrong. And he judges perfectly. The diadems represent his sovereignty, his reign, his rule, the, the, the beast has uh, multiple crowns, but Jesus outdoes them all. Then you've got this unknown name, and you've got this bloody garment, and that, those are the two that kind of tend to trip people up. So I'm going to spend a couple minutes there because I think it helps us get to the point of this passage, the, the crux of the whole thing. And the first thing to understand with this bloody garment, this uh, robe that he's wearing that's dipped in blood or saturated in blood, is from Isaiah 63. You don't have to turn there. We're going to put this one up because I think you should see it. But anyone who's spent any time in Isaiah 63 then reads Revelation 19, sees exactly what John is seeing. Here's what Isaiah writes. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? Okay, so red garments, right? Or garments that have been made red, crimsoned. He who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? You know, those, uh, I don't know, Italian women who march on grapes in the big vat full of grapes, um, they got to change their clothes after that, right? So it's using that imagery of somebody, imagine going with a white garment into a wine press and then smashing grapes for a couple hours and what your garments would look like, that that's what your garment looks like. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? And his answer is, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Not necessarily the verse from Isaiah that makes it onto coffee mugs, but there it is. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, their lifeblood spattered on my garments. Now, many Christians go, well, that's Old Testament. This is the blood of the cross. And my question to you is where you're getting that from. He's clearly channeling Isaiah 63, and the answer to the question is posed. Why are your, why are your garments 
looking all red splattered. And he says, it's the fury of my wrath, trampling my enemies. That's what it says. So that's the image. He's riding this horse. He's coming. Now some would say, well, in this scene, his, his robe is already dipped in blood before he delivers his wrath with the sword. And so it can't be the result of trampling his enemies if he hasn't trampled yet. And this is where I'm going to bank on those of you who have been with us all the way from the beginning of Revelation, that we, we press Revelation too hard for chronology. Okay, it's a beautiful picture. The one who is the fulfillment of Isaiah 63 is coming to ride his horse. We're not supposed to go, wait a minute, but it can't be bloody yet. It has to ride the horse and then it's bloody. This is not, he's not rolling actual footage. I don't know how I do this, like if I grew up in 1915. <laughs> but he's, he's riding the horse as the fulfillment of Isaiah 63 already. And as soon as you see the bloody garment, you know what he's there to do. So that's why his apparel is red. He's fulfilling Isaiah 63. And now, I think this next point is going to help us with his name, his unknown name, which later in, in, in verse 12, his, his, there's a name written, but nobody knows it. And then in verse 16, there's a name written, and everybody knows it, right? Well, which one is it? Well, maybe he just has a bunch of names, and some of them people know, and some of them others don't know. Uh, I'm going to put something on the screen that's a little bit uh, maybe technical, but I think it's helpful. Because when we look at the text like this, everything is just smushed together and jammed in there, and we don't, we don't necessarily see patterns, but patterns are helpful for you to see what matters. So this is called, uh, many call it a chiasm. It doesn't matter what you call it, but you'll see... The A's work together, the B's work together, the C's work together, and then you've got D in the middle. You see it? Okay. So he comes riding, and he's got a name that nobody knows, an unknown written name, and then it tells us he has a known written name. All right? That's like the bread to the sandwich. There's your ciabatta buns right there. All right? This whole thing is, begins and ends with his name. And those that he conquers don't know his name because... You know, like in the Old Testament, when you, had, when you had someone's name, you have power over them in a sense. And so they don't know his name, but those who, who he came to save, we know his name. We know who he is. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. They don't know them. They don't know him as King of kings and Lord of lords, but they will. I think that's why it begins and ends with that. And then you see B13A, his blood-soaked garment. And then ding, there's the answer. Why is the, blood, why is the garment blood-soaked? Because he treads the wine press. It says it right there in verse 15. Okay, so maybe that's like your lettuce. It's going to be an awkward sandwich, but whatever, you know, lettuce in the top, lettuce in the bottom. Then 13b and 15a explain that the sword proceeding out of the mouth of Christ is the word of God. Again, highly symbolic. It's not camera footage. Jesus isn't riding a, a literal white horse in the same way that he's not he doesn't have a large blade hanging out of his mouth. It's just silly. It would be hard to even draw it. But it's symbolic. Why is the sword coming out of his mouth? Because it's the word. It's the word of God. Now, oftentimes, when you see a kind of this kind of sandwich deal happening in Scripture, the purpose of it is to show you the meat in the middle. 
as uh, one of my, I don't know how true it is, one of my students uh, at Trinity said, sandwiches are known by the meat in the middle. Right? A tuna sandwich, a PBJ. What's in the middle there? And look what is in the middle here in verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That has no parallel because it's in the middle. That's the D in the middle, right? Okay? And everything surrounding it is Christ's power, his, his putting down of enemies. And then in the middle, you don't have people going, Oh, Jesus, you're being mean right now. They're like, yes! And they're, I mean, they're riding their white horses too. They're, they're behind them. He's doing all the work. And notice in this whole scene, there's no battle actually. There's no clanging of swords. There's no Helm's Deep scene where they almost get it. And then, oh, finally at the end, there's no almost, we almost lost. Jesus speaks judgment and it's over. They're there to watch it. They're there, to, they're, they're there not as an army because Jesus needs help. They're there as an army because they have gone before, witnesses to his truth. And I think these are the saints. I think these are the saints who've... Uh, been given their resurrected bodies and are marching in on God's judgment behind Jesus Christ. As we're told numerous times, we share in that judgment. We were told earlier in the opening section of Revelation that we are also given the rod of iron. We share in that reigning. We share in that crushing. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it looks something like riding behind our warrior, our chief, as he puts down all enemies. So the center here is the armies that ride with Christ that I think are the saints whose faithfulness and righteousness are vindicated by Christ's judgment. You can make a note or take a peek at it if you want. Revelation seventeen fourteen. Back when we started this whole thing with the Babylon and the prostitute. It says in seventeen fourteen, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And listen, those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That's not angels. That's saints. Another note to make is that white garments are normally applied to saints in the book of Revelation. There's only one exception where white garments don't apply to saints, and that's in 15.6. But white garments are clearly given to saints in chapter 3, in verses 4 to 5, and verse 18, so a couple times in chapter 3. We see it again in chapter 4, verse 4. We see it again in chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 9. And then 13 to 14. You don't have to write all those down. You can just go back to the recording if you really need it. But I just want to help you see that white garments, again and again and again, are applied to the saints. So why would it be angels here? I think it's saints here. I think it's saints here. The whole point of this passage is to encourage saints. Angels aren't being persecuted by the dragon. Saints are. Angels aren't being vindicated by Christ's judgment. Saints are. Angels aren't being thrown in jail for preaching God's word. Saints are. Angels aren't separated from their families because they're showing up to church. Angels don't have their uh, sanctuaries blown up by terrorists. Saints do. So it wouldn't make sense for angels to be in the center of the sandwich. Saints that are longing for vindication are at the center. Not that the center of all things, everything belongs to Christ and he is the hero. But he's doing it to vindicate the saints. And the armies that get crushed in this passage are human antagonists. He doesn't come to crush the spirit of the age, 
the feeling of lostness, depravity in general. He doesn't come to correct bad theology. He comes to crush the nations. And nations are made up of people that rage against him. Now, Christ's wrath is a missing category for many of us. It's uh, maybe not necessarily our favorite attribute, but again, I think that's because we often miss the kind of suffering that would prompt you to long for it. The kind of suffering that would prompt you to long for it. I'll just give you a couple examples, and I know it'll take us a couple minutes, but I think it's really important to drive this home. Uh, one example is uh, from another book that I recommend, Triumph of the Lamb by Dennis Johnson. Not big, not thick, very readable, and I commend it to you if you don't have it yet. Dennis Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb. Now listen to this passage. I'm just going to read it to you because my retelling wouldn't do it justice. Uh, Miroslav Volf, uh, reflecting on his Croatian people's suffering at the hands of Serbian aggressors, concludes that, now this is interesting, only the biblical confidence that God will bring the unjust to justice at history's end can enable victims to respond to their attackers with nonviolent grace in the present. Did you catch that? Only the promise of Revelation 19 that Jesus is going to come and crush the wicked people, that's the only hope you have of ever being able to muster the kind of grace it takes to not retaliate when you're attacked. He says, the presupposition of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. He anticipates, quote, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To his objectors, he proposes that they imagine themselves so he, he's, he's saying to those theologians who would disagree, imagine themselves lecturing on the thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect in non-coercive love to people living in a war zone whose villages have been plundered and burned, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, and whose fathers and brothers have been murdered. Soon you will discover, he says, that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. In other words, his point is it is not enough to just believe we have to love our enemies. You have to also cling to the biblical truth that eventually God will put them down. That that is what will get you through suffering without retaliating. I think that's true. I remember sitting in a class back, not when I was teaching at Trinity, when I was a student at Trinity. It was a counseling class, and uh, the professor was a, a specialist in sexual abuse. And so he dealt often with um, uh, counselees who were struggling with the trauma of some kind of sexual abuse. And he would give them scripture. I mean, he was a Christian counselor after all. He would give them scripture verses to reflect on. And I don't know if you've ever felt like just reading through scripture verse after scripture verse, sometimes it's just not hitting you. But she came to him one session and she goes, Dr. So-and-so, I finally found it, a verse that brings me comfort. And he's like, what did you find? And he's thinking in the back of his head, like, what's wrong with all the the psalms I was giving you? Or what's wrong with, you know, 
the encouraging verses I was giving you. She's like, do you, have you ever read that passage in Revelation 19 where Jesus is riding the horse and he pulls out his sword and his blood is, his garment is filled with all the blood of all the people. He cuts them down. He kills them all. Yeah? She's like, that brings me comfort because he doesn't just let them get away with it. The God who sits up there and he's like, oh, grace, grace, I sprinkle grace everywhere while people are being murdered and raped and killed. That's not a God of love. We need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that Christ, or the Lord, teaches us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It doesn't say vengeance is wrong. It says, vengeance is mine. In other words, vengeance should happen and will happen. Just don't take it into your hands. I got it. Does he? Does God really have it? Does he read the newspapers? Does he see what's happening? Does he know what happened to you? Yes. Well, what is he going to do about it? I want to read to you a couple of things just to help drive this home and then we'll wrap up the rest of the chapter. But I think it's crucial for us to expand our horizon of suffering beyond just ourselves. What we experience in our own lives here in America. And you can find this in, um, on opendoors.org. But we see a violent hatred of God in the world around us today. I'm getting this, and this won't be on the screen, but I'm getting this from opendoors.org, and you can find other websites for it as well. Here's what they write. This is their update, their latest update. I pasted it in this morning. Okay? So it's truly the latest that they have. 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith last year. We're not talking about arrests, tortured or maligned or lost their job, killed because they're Christian, 5,621. That's not a small number. That was just last year. 90% of these were from Nigeria alone. The huge increase, they write, in violence in Nigeria and sub-Saharan Africa has caused more Christians to lose their lives in the last five years Christians killed in 2023 numbered 80% more than five years ago. That is 3,066 Christians. Do you remember this one from 2018, June 23rd, 2018? Uh, in the Plateau State um, in Nigeria, 120 Christians were killed by Fulani militants as they were coming home from a funeral. You may have seen that on your news feed or perhaps not. The website states that North Korea has returned to number one this year with the highest levels of persecution ever seen. They also report that despite its drop in ranking, persecution remains extreme in Afghanistan. Fewer Afghan Christians were killed for their faith in 2022. Many have fled or were killed when the Taliban, uh, Taliban took over. Christian converts who remain are in deep hiding and would likely face death if discovered. In China, the use of digital surveillance technology is spreading, adding to persecution and intimidation. 
As digital tools become more sophisticated, so did the Chinese government. Beijing employed censorship, disinformation, and unblinking surveillance to ratchet up control of religious groups. Last one. Nicaragua has entered the top 50 for the first time. This reflects government repression, which escalated since the April 2018 protests. The reputation of authority and legitimacy of the church has in the country uh, has made it a particular target. Church buildings were damaged, TV stations and colleges closed, religious leaders expelled. I can go on and on, but we would have to be like this to not join John in Revelation twenty two twenty, when he says simply, come. Come, not just to have a feast, but to destroy the enemies. No matter the injustice we now face, God will hold the wicked accountable completely, totally. And we see this in the rest of the passage, 17 to 21. We begin with a feast that we enjoy, then Jesus riding on his horse to vindicate the sense, and then we finish with a feast that will be for those who don't get invited to the first feast. They get not to enjoy a feast, but they get feasted upon. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army." And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. A lot of symbolism there, but you often in scripture have a a Jesus feast motif also with the, the 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 theme of those who are cast out from that feast here's a couple quick ones the lord's supper you start with 12 guests not not including Jesus he has 12 guests and as they're feasting someone is the son of perdition the parable of the 10 virgins the door is shut to the marriage feast and some of those virgins made it to the marriage feast. What happens to the other ones? They're outcasts. The parable of the wedding feast, you might be familiar with that one in Matthew 22. The usurpers are killed in the king's anger. They try to take over the kingdom, and the king kills them in his anger. And then all the uninvited are cast into outer darkness for weeping and gnashing of teeth outside of that wedding feast. So here we see it again. There's the feast that we enjoy, and then there's the outcast. What happens to them? They get feasted upon. And as Psalm 2 describes, the sun takes on the raging nations and crushes them. It's not like the nations are sitting there going, huh, I kind of believe in God. They hate them. And, and, they're, and they're, they're making war against them. They're, they're joined together with the, with the, the they're, they're deceived by the great harlot who rides the beast. And all together, the kings of the earth gather, verse, 16, verse 19, to make war against him. So Jesus doesn't come and just pick on random nations. They are already at war against him, 
and he comes to put them down. They are bird food. Cursed by God. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that the, the image of being bird food representing being cursed by God. And they're utterly destroyed. And notice verse 18, they're destroyed from the top to the bottom and from the greatest to the least. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, the riders, free people, slave people, small people, great people. That's why I said his judgment is total and it's complete. He doesn't just handle the big cases. He doesn't just put down the despots of the world. But all the people that are much more off the radar than those famous or we should say infamous, notorious villains of the world. It's not like God didn't see that. He saw it. And they will be held accountable. The beast and the false prophet who deceived the nations face eternal judgment, 19 to 20. Does that mean people don't face eternal judgment? No, they do. We saw that already. And Jesus' judgment is perfect and it's utterly complete, verse 21. This is total and it's sure. And the encouragement we take from this, brothers and sisters, as we are told to persevere when we're surrounded by evil opposition, is that we can trust Jesus to win in the end. We can trust Jesus with crimes that go unpunished. We can trust Jesus for punishments where there was no crime. Injustice. We can trust Jesus with those who've deeply wounded us without remorse, without repentance. We can trust Jesus to vindicate us when we suffer for his name. And the promise of this passage is that we get to eat in peace because the enemy is consumed in wrath. Our peace is total because their judgment is complete. Christ's salvation is not only to rescue us out of judgment, but to rightly exact judgment on those who rise against him and his own. So what's the point of that? What's the point of clinging to that, understanding that? The point is we can endure evil. We can endure persecution because we can trust that Jesus is faithful and true to his word about the judgment he will bring. We rest in our hope of Christ, not in our ability to retaliate. Vengeance is not ours. We rest in the hope of Christ because our vindication is sure. And our vindication is sure because Jesus has taught us that his vengeance will be total. Last thing I'll say, if you're in here this morning, you cannot come away from this at least without asking yourself, which feast are you going to be a part of? Some of you aren't even in here ready to take part of this feast. If you're not taking part of this feast, you're definitely not ready for that feast. But see, the door to the ark is still open right now. But when he comes riding the white horse, it's over. And so not only do we take comfort as Christians, but those of us who aren't Christians have no comfort. Stop playing and figure this out. Stop putting it off because you might not have tomorrow. Even if you're young, you might not have the next day, the next week, the next year, to figure out, oh yeah, the feast thing. That needs to be right now. For the rest of you, you're carrying hurt, you're carrying pain, and you don't know how you can extend forgiveness to those who've hurt you. Do you realize the wrath that's coming for them? The only escape they'll have, possibly, 
is you responding to their infliction of pain upon you with love, maybe they'll catch a, catch a glimpse of Christ's grace and we can pray that they'll escape the wrath to come, which is greater than any wrath we would inflict on our own enemies. Let's pray for them. Pray for our persecutors and hope that they would take advantage of the fact that the door to the ark is not yet shut. Let's pray. Father, it's deeply humbling to read passages like this that are difficult, not so difficult because they're full of symbols, which they are, but difficult because they're tough themes, they're they're heavy. And we think about wrath and vengeance and vindication. Um, Lord, we also think about suffering and pain, persecution. We think about our brothers and sisters around the world and how privileged we are to be so free. We can, we can worship you freely, out loud, on the street with megahorns, <laughs> signs. We don't have to meet in private. Our hearts bleed for Christians around the world to have a better appreciation for the vindication you promised in Christ because they're catching heat and they're catching it bad. We pray that you would give us wisdom as to how we can better pray for our brothers and sisters, how we can support them, encourage them. Probably the greatest thing we can do for them is be emboldened by their witness, by their example, so that we can be courageous in our corners, that we can use our freedom and our privileges in ways that can announce your gospel to those who so desperately need it, who are stuck in a place of hunger and longing and will be at the wrong feast in the end. Use us, Lord, to transfer some who are stuck in darkness over to the light. We pray for baptisms and discipleship here. We pray for conversions. We pray for new members. Uh, Not to grow our church, but to grow your bride as we we, uh, await the return of our groom, Jesus Christ, with eager expectation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.